And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss, the podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. And this week, we are joined by a guest, Sarah Faith Alterman, who is one of the producers of Mortified, as well as the author of the new memoir, Let's Never Talk About This Again. Sarah, welcome. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. I am thrilled to be here chatting with you instead of taking care of my screaming children, who are just about two feet beyond me. got <laughs> <laughs> a very thin wall. Hi, guys. How are, how are you? How's your day? We're doing great. Yeah. Uh, I am also ignoring my children. <laughs> <laughs> and I am ignoring my cats. Oh, man. It's hard to know which one is more persistent when they're hungry, to be honest with you. Um, my cats? Yeah. Do you mean do you mean cats or children? <laughs> cats or children. It's like, cat, I feel like you can ignore with less guilt. I mean, maybe that shows my status as a non-cat owner, but I feel like the cat is never going to learn your name and like learn little ways to kind of amp up the needling. A cat, I feel like, just has a consistent begging routine, whereas a kid will, like, they learn your name. They learn how to unlock the door from the outside. They learn, like, all the physical things that drive you crazy. Like, my son knows um, how much I hate it when he blows raspberries on me, and so if I'm ignoring him, like, if he were in this room right now... He'd be like, mama, 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 mama. And he'd just get louder. And then he would just start like blowing raspberries all over my arm and like climbing on me until I actually paid attention to it. It's horrible. I would rather, I would take a cat a million times over. This is a parent podcast, right? This is, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's been this lately. Is, uh, yeah. This is now an episode. Yeah. Out on by not having children. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, I think, I think too, uh, I think eventually a cat will just like go find food elsewhere, but. Your child will eventually be like, Mama, why haven't you fed me today? <laughs> and then a, then a stranger hears that and they're like, oh, my God, they have not fed their children. I know cats are way more resourceful. Like they can go out and kill mice or they can find neighbors that have pity on them. And children are just like, they'll just lie on the floor screaming until they pass out and then wake up and start the screaming again. It's happening now. <laughs> <laughs> we like we, we, we like yeah. the screaming it adds a nice ambiance to the to the episode yeah it's really good for audio i think for an audio focused um experience when you can hear like all kinds of background background noise in the background that's not really like a distraction to a listener but just a distraction to the people who are trying to talk sure yeah <laughs> anyway hi hi <laughs> yeah. cool so let's um uh, Sarah, you and I know each other um, through Mortified. That's how I met you. Um, uh, gosh, I think it was 10 years ago. Um, I drove up in a really awful snowstorm to audition <laughs> for the show. Um, but how, I, don't, I never asked how you got involved with Mortified. So what's your sort of story there? Yeah, well, first, I hate to break it to you, but it was more like 12 years ago. Um, <laughs> because I know, I remember that audition and where the show was happening at the time, and it was definitely at least 12 years ago, old man. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> so let me explain what Mortified is, and then I'll talk a little bit about my history with it. So it's a live um, storytelling show and also a podcast and a Netflix series that we call a comic excavation of the strange and extraordinary things we created as kids. So it's essentially adults, very brave adults reading on stage from their real teenage artifacts. So diaries, song lyrics, poems, letters, basically anything 
that you would have created or written as a kid and never thought would see the light of day. The whole point is that you get up on stage and you just share it um, in front of a bunch of strangers for comic effect. Usually, I mean, it's a comedy show. It definitely can get very poignant um, and very sweet, but it, you know, the point is not to embarrass anyone to the point of their own, like, <laughs> detriment, <laughs> mental health problems. <laughs> it's just for laughs. Um, and so I got involved originally probably close to 15 years ago at this point as a reader. I had met um, the previous producer. Her name is Julia Rossi. She's a comedian who's in New York now, but she was in Boston and she was running the show out of the Paradise Lounge, which I believe does not exist as a venue anymore, but is... Um, it's on Comab. I think it's a restaurant now, maybe music. But anyway, at the time, it was sort of a catch-all small venue. And I met Julia at a comedy show in Boston at a comedy theater called Improv Boston that we were both performing with. And she said to me, hey, I'm doing this crazy show. You know, you just kind of come and read from your diary. Do you want to do it? Yeah, okay. So I went, and the show was way more freeform than it is now. Um, now it's a pretty heavily, I don't want to say use the word curated, but coached it's a coached experience you know it's never it's not an open mic I would never just throw somebody up on stage you, you work very specifically with people to make sure that their material is going to be interesting to an audience and that they're not going to stand up there and fail miserably because no one thinks they're funny uh, but at the time it was more freeform freeform so I went and I performed in the show and I fell in love with it and I remember that moment of just saying these things that were so painfully awkward to me to even read on the page to myself. I remember saying them out loud to an audience and just like the rush that came with that and getting a laugh by being or channeling exactly that kind of awkward kid that I had been as a teenager. It was awesome. So I did the show as a reader for a couple of years, but maybe read once or twice a year. And then Julia wanted to move to New York and she wanted to pass the show along to another producer or two and she wanted it to be women and she wanted it to be people who weren't only you know funny and capable of performing well but who could really grow the show and sort of nurture it into a more precise more um what's the word I'm looking for just like an elevated experience for everyone and so I took over with her and a woman named Karen Corday um or from her and with Karen Corday and Karen and I just sort of dove in to start booking more shows and finding more people. And from there, we kind of grew it into what it's become now, which is a show that has chapters across the world. Like I said, we have a Netflix series. Um, we have a weekly podcast. It's all this, um, all these shows across the world kind of bring our content together so people who don't have a live show where they live can experience it. But that's how I got involved, was just being a reader and being interested enough and organized enough to want to try and get involved in a deeper level. And then... I forget, did you, how did we find you? Because this was like 2007, 2008? Uh, it was, uh, it was 2009 because I had come off of a really uh, bad breakup uh, and shortly before that, so I, I, I think I came to audition shortly after the new year. For Christmas, I was given one of the Mortified books and um uh, this woman I had been seeing was like, oh, you should really do this. I think you should do this. Um, and then we broke up and then I kind of like did it out of spite, which is fairly appropriate <laughs> for the show. <laughs> uh, and I, I remember, you know, that it, it was a really awful snowstorm and I drove up and I'm like, I got to do this thing. I need, I need to like just do something. I have all this, uh, 
and I had like a really like unfortunate James Hetfield beard <laughs> at the time. I do not find that unfortunate at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I I had reached out through the website, and you guys called me back, and I had um, some stories that I had written in elementary school. Uh, but since then, I've found, um, gosh, some poems, uh, some journal entries from when I had my first high school girlfriend. Uh, one time we read excerpts from a screenplay I had written when I was super into Kevin Smith, and it was very obvious and unfortunate. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's been, uh, you know, it's it's been a, a certainly a, a highlight. Even before I started doing improv, that was sort of how I got that itch to get up on stage and make people laugh out of my system. And, uh, last, last year we finally got to do it in Providence, which was a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, I just, I just cold called the two of you and lucked out and that's how we got here. Now, have you, one thing that when I tell people about the show, um, they're kind of surprised that there are people like you and I who hold on to this stuff, um, because it is so, uh, tragic to look back on sometimes did you did you hold on to those notebooks and diaries like out of like this weird like sense of preservation or was it just like were you just kind of like a pack rat who just happened to have all that stuff still what was sort of why did you have it I think people hang on to their stuff for all kinds of reasons some people really enjoy it Karen for example is to this day a very prolific diary keeper and she loves to kind of go back and learn more about her current self by kind of revisiting and re reacquainting herself with Karen of previous years. I personally am someone who has a real guilt complex about throwing things away. And I think it's because my mom is an incredible archivist. And so actually just recently, she sent me a massive trove of things of mine from elementary school that were like, art projects, drawings, little cards that I had made for her, report cards, um, little kind of bits of memorabilia from a school that I went to when I was in kindergarten and first grade. It was like a little newspaper clipping from, you know, the town newspaper had done a story on something we were doing in class. So my mom keeps all this stuff. And I inherited from her the sort of compulsion to hang on to anything that might have some kind of sentimental value. So I wish I could say that I were an introspective enough person to understand that you can learn about your present by revisiting your own past but that's not it at all I just kept this stuff because every time I wanted to throw it away I had the thought of like well what if I want it later what if I need it later what if I feel upset that I didn't keep this like poem that I wrote when I was 15 that's about butterflies so I just kind of kept it all um which now of course has served me really well because I'm able to use it to perform and to make other people laugh but you know, it was never from um, a, a desire to kind of preserve part of myself. It was just more, oh, I can't throw this out. What if I, what if I miss it? And what's funny about the stuff my mom sent me and her being an archivist is that she doesn't like pull any of the stuff. And so she sent me all these report cards that are like very mediocre, <laughs> like C's, D's, but nothing like, there's no like spectacular failures that would be funny. Like I don't have any report cards that are all F's or have like an F minus or something crazy. It's like B minus D C like just all this crap that it's, she saved it just for the sake of saving it. And so I think I inherited that, um, 
that compulsion from her as well. It's so funny because I think of you as such an integral part of the Mortified family now that it's funny to think back on when you first started auditioning and like, thank God for that ex who (laughs) felt spiteful. (laughs) We ended up getting a real gem out of it Um, and something that I know has become a big part of your life and you know, I hope that we can go back to having live theater in person because growing the chapter in Providence, I think, is going to be so fun and you're going to do an incredible job with it. So hopefully Providence will have a chance to be in the theater in person someday. That would be nice. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, it would be great. Um, I'm not feeling optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) When you asked me to do the show, we're talking about media that I had missed, which is a lot. I missed a lot of stuff and I know we'll get into that. But the first thing I thought of was, what, can I talk about the story that you first read at Mortified? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so one of the first things that Tony ever read was <laughs> a short story he wrote called Indiana Skywalker and the Rectum of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> I know this story well. <laughs> and I will let you explain what it is, but you know, I just thought <laughs> what an incredible opportunity to talk about all of the things that I missed um, and all of the things that Tony was able to put into one single story about the digestive system. It's like a perfect confluence of all these things. Um, Yeah. Why don't you just like sum that up because it's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in, in fourth grade, the science curriculum was all about um, the different systems in the human body. Um, And I guess whenever we would finish with or when we finished with the digestive system in particular, we were tasked with writing a um, writing a story that explained the function of how the digestive system worked. And I decided, oh, this is a great idea to combine my love for uh, everything George Lucas has ever made uh, and get away with shit jokes. And I created Indiana Skywalker and the Rectum of Doom, um, complete with the iconic... Um, uh, Indiana Jones boulder scene, but this was a giant ball of human shit chasing <laughs> this little tiny microscopic spaceship through someone's bowel. Um, and it's th- that story became kind of like a family legend and there was no, um, written proof of it. And then finally, um, I think my mom or my sister called me up and my sister loved watching old home movies, but there was, um, there was a, like a, a parent teacher, not a not a parent teacher conference, but like a, like family night or whatever at school, um, and my teacher read that story to the entire class's parents, and my parents had videotaped it. So um, so I, I I sat there and transcribed it, and then um, that's and then submitted to you guys for for mortified. But uh, yeah. Probably my best work. I peaked when I was eight. <laughs> More of a piece it's like such a good snapshot of not only who you were as a kid, but what was going on in the world around you and pop culture. And then in school too, I think we all remember having like different lessons in science class that we were supposed to turn into creative stories. And so I understand fully, even not having seen Star Wars or any of the Indiana Jones movies at the time and still to this day, except for the one I watched for this podcast, I still understood exactly like, the time and place of that story um, because of the sort of confluence of things that all came into it. So it's like the perfect example of a successful mortified piece. Good job. Yay. 
before we move on, before we move on from Mortified, Matt, is there any um, archives uh, of, of of young Matt? Maybe uh, any demos from the Hitler stole my potato days that you'd like to share with the world? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast, but I had a band in high school called Hitler stole my potato. Um, I I think the the thing is like I, recently my parents have started kind of like my dad's a pack rat pack rat and he. I mean, he has everything, and recently they've decided they need to just kind of clean out the whole entire house because they're the my parents are the only two that live there, and it's like a three bedroom house, and it's big, and there's just it's just packed. And recently, my mom's like, "We have all of your artwork um, from when you were in high school," because I was uh, I was in all the art classes, I was a visual artist, and she's like, "You should probably come take a look at this. You might want it." So I came and I looked through it, and I found this book. That was hard, how to draw comics the Marvel way. And I took that. I'm like, I'll keep this. You could burn the rest. And this is all artwork I did when I was in high school. All my portfolio stuff that I used for colleges and all that stuff. I'm like, I cannot look at this. I can't. It's just, you know, to borrow a phrase, it's mortifying. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So I was like, she's like, this is artwork. Like, you, you sure you don't want to keep this? And I'm like, what am I going to do with it? I'm just going to look at it every once in a while and be angry at, at my inept cartooning ability uh, and, and I don't want to I don't want to be angry anymore and I, this has been a source of contention with like former bandmates because they're always just like why, why can't you enjoy the music we made when we were younger and I was just like because when I listen to it I just I just hear everything that's wrong with it and I can't I can't I need to just move forward so anytime I finish any kind of recording or or any project it's just like all right on to the next one because i i just revisiting it is too painful for me but i I don't have anything that's written down i wasn't like a writer writer so uh but a lot a lot of artwork and a lot of early demos but my early demos i'd probably put on you just say like oh this is boring i doubt it i i everything you're saying though makes so much sense to me because i often describe looking through your like the stuff from your teenage years as looking into a funhouse mirror because it is a version of yourself that has evolved, hopefully, but also was in flux at the time, right? When you're a teenager, you're really just trying to figure out the whole world. And and in my experience working with readers, their worlds had a lot of stuff going on that had very similar stakes. So especially someone who grew up in like the early 90s, there will be diary entries that cover just within the span of one entry a parent's divorce, the crush on the kid from math class, like how bad it felt to be in gym today and the Gulf War, just all in the same entry. And people, you know, because your world is like such a bizarre place where you're still trying to sort out what really matters in the grand scheme of things and what doesn't. And so when you say, oh, if I listen to music, all I hear is what's wrong. Or if I look at art, the art, all I see is how bad I was at drawing. I totally understand that because when I look back at some of my old stuff, I see the pain and discomfort that I felt as a kid, I can see it now. And I don't want to think about that because I'd like to think that I've grown past it. And of course I am 40 years old and still very much caught up in high school. And so I clearly have not moved past it in so many ways. I understand what you mean about not wanting to go there because for me, it is revisiting a time in my life that I was not happy and not comfortable with myself and not comfortable among my peers. Um, And so I totally get it. I get wanting to trash all that stuff and not wanting to think about the person that you were because you didn't like that person. 
I'm, I'm not ascribing. But mortified, mortified makes a lot of sense to me, though, because it is repurposing these painful things and making it a cathartic experience. And people can share in your pain. And if they're, you know, uh, 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 they're, they're, you're making yourself like, you know, I actually have this great quote uh, that I, uh, I recently read um, uh, a Nora Ephron book. She said, I, I now believe that what my mother meant when she said everything is copy is this. When you slip on a banana peel, people laugh at you. But when you tell people you slipped on a banana peel, it's your laugh. So you become the hero rather than the victim of the joke. Um, and, 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 and I think that's obviously applicable to, to Mortified. Um, although, although, like, again, I, I, I couldn't go up there and, like, behold this really terrible drawing of superheroes and, and, and look at this cleavage on this 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 female superhero, which is indicative of how terrible the 90s were to women in comic books. Not just the 90s, babe. Right now. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Always. Um, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. And the only way that Mortified works is if everyone is in on the joke together. It's never about putting someone in the position to be laughed at or certainly not laughing at someone else like if someone wanted to get up on stage and read about you know this person they went to high school with and like what a loser they were like we're not not making fun of anyone that's not in on it and so I think if you don't feel any sort of like funny or cathartic cringiness or shame when you look back on your own stuff like there's no point right it's not going to be cathartic or fun if you look back on your drawings from high school and don't see anything cathartic or fun about it, then there's no, I would, I would burn it. I would say <laughs> the cleavage is fun to revisit, but I think it would just make people angry. Um, but no, I think you're right in that you have to be able to be the hero of your own story in order to control how people are, or at least influence how people are are absorbing that story. And so, yeah, if you got up on stage and you were like, this is music I wrote, I fucking hate it, I'm angry about it, no one's going to want to laugh about that because everyone <laughs> wants to support you, Matt, and the adult. You know? and, um, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's such an incredible comedy show. And Tony, I'm not at all surprised that it was one of the things that inspired you to go on to do more types of comedy because unlike, let's say, a stand-up show or even an improv show where it can feel very much like the audience is expecting you to bring them on board with mortified. The audience is on board with you and supports you from the minute you get on stage because they know I'm granted, you know, every once in a while there's some asshole who heckles, but I'm doing the show for 15 years. I've done it in multiple cities. I can count on one half of one hand, the amount of times that it felt like the audience was not being supportive. And even then, like I remember one guy heckled, me and fortunately I can handle that um in San Francisco and it was like a playful heckle but he got like torn out of there by his friends they dragged him out because the spirit of the show is the person on stage is doing something that's really painful and hard and we need to support them and it's incredible and I don't I can't think of another type of comedy show I mean there's other storytelling formats sure but I can't think of another type of comedy show that I've been to or been a part of where I felt like the audience and I were on the same team from the very beginning and you don't have to earn that from them, which I think is a special thing. Tony, I mean, I don't know. I don't do improv. I've just seen a lot of improv shows, so you might feel differently, but in my mind, you have to really get them. You have to really earn them. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. For sure. And I think, um, 
you know, just, you know, I mean, you did mention that Mortified has become a little more um, curated, for lack of a better word, but that's more about just making sure the person is prepared. There is that, that raw, uh, unrefined aspect of something that somebody wrote when they were immature, overwhelmed by all these new conflicting emotions um, that's universal. And the particulars will vary from um, storyteller to storyteller, but the the general idea of just being so uncomfortable in your own skin and um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all, uh, there's, there's such universal appeal to that. I don't think there's been a single piece that I've, I've heard at a show. And again, I've been participating for, for 12 years now. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing that I haven't ever been able to relate to even, um, you know, even the guy who rapped about Starcraft, I didn't rap, but I played Starcraft and that obsession and wanting to like create something within that world somebody else already made. Uh, I can, I could sort of, you know, get on that wavelength. Um, so, I mentioned as well at the beginning, uh, you have a new book out, uh, a memoir. So kind of along the lines of sort of looking back and, uh, exploring, uh, you know, your, your personal story and sort of shaping that into you being the, the, you know, the, the, the hero, I guess. So, um, let's talk a bit about your, your book, which is about your relationship with your dad. Um, initially as you're, um, discovering as a, a younger person that he had this secret life as a writer of pornographic gag books um and then up through um you know through through uh, his, his uh, battle with alzheimer's so wanna, uh, tell us a bit about the book i feel like pornographic gag books is an accidental beautiful <laughs> 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 to be clear books about gagging in any way <laughs> <laughs> It, he just he just had that one kink that he focused on. <laughs> in my own book, the story using it as an example is about a woman who goes in for a job interview at a lollipop factory. So gagging, I was standing. Let me take it back and explain all this. So my book is called Let's Never Talk About This Again. And it ties in or fits in so perfectly with talking about Mortified and with your podcast because it is all about my relationship with my dad, who is a very strict, um, protective, conservative, not politically conservative, but just sort of conservative with um, the things that his kids were allowed to do and see. So my dad was all of these things. And he also had a secret career writing naughty, funny sex books. So the books, most of them he wrote in the 70s and early 80s, I guess through through mid 80s. Um, and they were kind of borscht-belty. A lot of them were meant to be, like, tongue-in-cheek, kind of a lot of euphemisms, a lot of, like, wink-wink stuff. Um, and he worked with a, an illustrator he had a long relationship with named Marty Riskin. They had met when they were both working at the Boston Phoenix, which does not exist anymore. Does the Providence Phoenix still exist? I can't remember. No, I think ours died first. So the, the Phoenix was a media organization that had a bunch of different alt-weekly newspapers, um, a radio station, some magazines. I think there, there was a Phoenix in Worcester, which I know closed a long time ago. Then there was Boston, Providence, and Portland, Maine. So it could be that Portland is still going. But anyway, my father worked there in the 1960s and 70s, and that's when he met 
this guy, Marty Riskin, who was a cartoonist. And so they teamed up to write all these like funny sex books, which at the time were sort of pioneering a new space of, I don't want to say literature, I'm saying it with like huge finger quotes, but a new space um, in the, they called the gift book industry. So if you think of like Spencer Gifts, it was those like books that would be sold there and in fact were for a long time. So he, they wrote all these jokey books. They had a whole collection of sex manuals. So it was like Jewish sex manual, official Italian sex manual, the official Irish sex manual. And it was all just like the same book, but using different words for dick, right? It was like the Irish. <laughs> and it was like constantly talking about your potato and the Italian one, it was like all about your cannoli, right? Um, so there was like funny stuff like that. He had a very famous book that I've, I still meet people that had this book growing up. That was called, uh, can I say that? Can I say this word on yep. your podcast? Okay. Uh, it was called Games You Can Play With Your Pussy. And the cover of the book has this orange cartoon cat that was like a Garfield knockoff. And the whole like premise of the book is like cat caretaking. And then when you open the book, of course, it's all just like very, it's not even thinly veiled, it's just like weirdly veiled, like sex jokes. Um, so he had those kinds of books, and then he also had more corny books um, that were part of this series that starred a character named Bridget. And so Bridget was a, a model, so these were all photographs. She was a fat woman, and the whole point of Bridget was that it was funny that Bridget was fat and also posing in, like, sexy lingerie and sexy positions and... You know, she was, like, a, positioned as a sex symbol, but it was supposed to be funny, right, that this fat lady, you know, was sexy because fat women aren't sexy. So he wrote a bunch of these Bridget-centric um, books, uh, including one called Bridget Sexual Fantasies, which has the lollipop story that I mentioned before. It's, it's all these different um, short stories about different types of sex and... Oral sex is how Bridget goes in for a job at a lollipop factory and they want to know how good she is at sucking lollipops. And I found these books when I was a little girl and I didn't know anything about sex. Um, and, and all I knew about my dad was he was this like really kind of prudish guy. And so I found the books when I was little, learned about sex immediately, saw my dad's name as the author on the books and was like instantly confused, remained confused my entire young and adult life um, until my dad... Uh, kind of started talking about the books again when he was in his um, 60s and developed symptoms of Alzheimer's. So huge. <laughs> I just gave you a really quick, weird summary of the book. But, you know, it, 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 part of the reason why I was excited to do your podcast is because my dad was trying to overcompensate for having this secret career writing these first books. And so he forbade me and my brother from seeing a lot of movies and TV that my peers were seeing and listening to a lot of music that they were listening to. And so part of the reason why I missed this movie and so many other movies is because we just weren't allowed to watch them. My parents were very, very um, strict about what we could see, as I mentioned, and we really just watched Disney, but like animated Disney. And if we did live action Disney, it was like the Apple Dumpling Gang, like really chased stuff. So I missed all these things, including Indiana Jones, and just never, I don't know, I just never went back because I missed it. I, I knew that these were cultural touchstones and iconic works, but I don't know. I just never felt a relationship with them or a connection to them, so I just never went back and watched them. That was a very long answer. <laughs> no, that's... Uh, it's a, it a good answer. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
you texted me before you watched it. You said, the only thing I know about this movie is snakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which like is, is a central part of the character, but like also like a weird go-to. <laughs> I was, I figured like, Oh, maybe a hat emoji, but no, you went with the snakes. Um, so I, my, my folks were also very, um, over uh, overprotective about what we consumed uh but did you ever uh, can you think of any like uh tv or movie or music that you may have um that would have been not allowed at home but like that you maybe that stick out as something like maybe you, you snuck at a friend's house like i remember my friend's dad being horrified that i was like oh i gotta call my mom before you guys watch the simpsons i gotta make sure that's okay I, I couldn't even, I couldn't even, uh, sneak it. I was such like, uh, an obsessive rule follower and just lived in a constant fear of my parents. What about, so like, did you find like little, uh, did you find time to sort of carve out to, to sneak that kind of stuff when they weren't watching? Yeah. I'm, first of all, I love that you were like a parent's dream and that you were so committed to their rules that you wouldn't even break them. Even when you were, there was no risk of getting caught. Um, I, there were two ways that I managed to get to stuff that I wasn't allowed. One was watching over my parents' shoulder when they didn't think that I was paying attention. So especially if it was later at night, if I was supposed to be doing homework or something, um, I could like always sneak down and maybe catch the tail end of what my dad was watching. And that's how I, I got to watch Married with Children sometimes, which was I just watched behind my dad's back, which is a funny one. And then, yes, at sleepovers, sure, I would get TV or, or movies. And the things that really pop into my head as memorable, and this might be why I sort of shut myself off to everything about Raiders of the, of the Lost Ark, but Snakes, is um, I watched Pet Cemetery at a friend's sleepover. And I already do not do well with scary movies. I think because another thing that I, another unallowed movie that I managed to sneak when I was really little was The Watcher in the Woods. Do you guys know that <coughs> Disney movie? It is yeah. a Disney film. I don't want to get the year wrong. I watched it in the mid eighties. I think it came out at the end of the eighties. Um, it has a very late career, Betty Davis in it. She's fantastic, but it's about a family and I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but I will, I will pull it from my brain and then people can yell at you or me later. But it's basically <laughs> a mom and her two daughters go to move into the spooky mansion that Betty Davis owns for a mysterious reason. I don't know why. Maybe she works there. I can't remember. But the whole point is that the older daughter, they, they she goes to like this church and they have some weird, a bunch of, of neighbor kids like have a weird ritual during a solar eclipse. And a girl, I think it was Betty Davis's daughter, like switched places with like a demon from another dimension. And like she's been missing and no one knows where she's been for like decades. And, and the older daughter in the movie is able to see her in mirrors. Like she'll go, she'll look in the mirror in the bathroom and she'll see a blindfolded girl like in her reflection that's just going, help, help, help. And they figure out how to like swap her back with this um, demon who's from another dimension and also just trying to get home by having another like ritual in a church during, a like it's very complicated, but it would scare the shit out of me. And so that set the tone for me is being terrified of looking into mirrors at night and also <laughs> just being alone in the woods and scary movies in general. And so 
probably why I remember Pet Cemetery so well is because I didn't, by, you know, design, was not allowed to watch horror movies. And then I just didn't want to watch them anyway because I was so scared of The Watcher in the Woods. So I remember this girl I was friends with, Megan, she had a sleepover. She was maybe turning 13 and her parents um, put a, we had a big tent in the, in the backyard and they put a TV. I remember the extension cord running from the house into the tent they put a TV in the tent and they, we watched Pet Cemetery, And I, to this, like, I'm terrified of that movie to this day. And this was, you know, almost 30 years ago. We just, we sat in the, it started to rain and we were watching, you know, Edward Furlong. And I remember this, I remember the scene of this couple, I don't know, they're kissing in a kitchen and the blonde lady, maybe she was the mom, like took a knife out and plunged the dead. I, there's details, like sketchy details. I watched through my but but you said you, you said Edward Furlong which is the sequel actually it's Pet Cemetery 2 it is sure yeah. but but mm-hmm. the thing with the 100%. stabbing in the kitchen is definitely the first one that's the ending of the first one yeah did you watch them both but I watched them definitely through my fingers because I'm so scared of horror movies and so that that's to me the thing that sticks out as um, the, the movie that I was able to watch without my parents knowing. And maybe it was like <laughs> that, that experience was so punishing that I've like blocked out all others and maybe that stopped me from breaking the rules. Um, I don't know. Um, but I I ended up doing that with, with Raiders of the Lost Ark as well because I knew about snakes, which I'm scared of. I'm scared of snakes. And so I spent a lot of the movie whenever there was tense music and you could sort of tell that something like scary for me anyway was going to happen i would put my hands over my face and watch through my fingers which i'm showing you now and so the snake scene which seems like a long it's like a long section of the movie i mostly listened to because i couldn't i couldn't watch it I was, <laughs> the, you know the slithering the hissing of the snakes and um would watch it through my fingers and so yeah, I, I learned to do that because all oh, because of Watcher in the Woods and Pet Cemetery. Are you sure Edward Furlong was not in the first Pet Cemetery? Yep. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we we did Pet Cemetery for an episode recently, so <laughs> I watched them both then. Um and I don't know when the second one came out, but um It's a few years. Okay, after. we must have watched them both because I remember him mm-hmm. because I was a teenage girl and of course he, at the time he was like a sexy person. <laughs> don't know why. Um, <laughs> today's teenagers don't know how lucky they are. They have so many more options than we did. And, <laughs> and that was it. So, yes, those are the those are the times that I kind of broke the rules. Um, but I didn't, you know, I grew up, I was a teenager in the early 90s. And, you know, certainly Netflix did not exist. The Internet wasn't a thing that we had access to. And so you really were limited to what you were allowed to watch at home or what you were able to sneak at a friend's house, for sure. We had Raiders of the Lost Ark taped off of HBO. And weirdly, even now, I can't keep track of how many times I've seen it. I always associate it with, um, we must have taped over Follow That Bird because because I remember, I, my, I always expect... Um, Oscar the Grouch's patent speech, you know, like for like the trash cans in front of the the American flag, like that. There's a, like five seconds of that before Raiders started on the tape we had, <laughs> and I'm and I'm always waiting for it. And it's never there. I definitely feel like I saw these movies when I was too young, 
But I think that's common because actually I rewatched it on Netflix and it's in the children and family section, which seems really odd. That's crazy. Um, Especially the face. But, uh, oh, yeah, exactly. And like there are all of them have really gruesome deaths in them. Well, the second one is responsible for one of the movies responsible for PG-13 as a rating existing because the second one came out and it's even more intense than the first movie. Uh, and, and that and Gremlins and people were like, I think we're going too far here. We need to at least make a distinction between what's really for everybody and maybe for older kids. I think that makes sense. I think I definitely thought a lot of it was gratuitous, but but tame. It, it felt like gratuitous in a comforting way when we were watching it last night. Um, my husband and I have been, as I think a lot of people are doing in quarantine, just really settling into shows that we had never watched before and binge watching stuff that's been on for multiple seasons. It's like the thing we look forward to every day. So we've been watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, I don't know if you guys watched it, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, but I've seen I've seen the first few seasons. It gets much better. The first season I felt like was eh, but I knew because now, you know, I think it just wrapped up after seven seasons and I knew that it had gotten much better. So we decided to just power through. And it is very you know, it's a network show, and so it is still tame by, you know, by standards of shows that have a lot of, of fights and death in them. But the fight scenes are really good, really well choreographed, and they seem, like, very bloody um, and very gory. And so we've just been watching episode after. We'll watch, like, two or three episodes a night. This has been on for weeks. And so then to transition into watching the fight scenes in, in Rages of the Lost Ark, it was like almost very cute. I thought like they were cute little fight scenes because they are very cartoonish. Um, but I still think if I had watched it as a kid, it would have been too much, especially things like the the face melting. And so, so it makes sense to me, Matt, based on what you were saying about how these are the movies that are responsible for there being this PG-13 rating because they definitely feel too much for little kids, but kind of laughable. Like I would never expect a movie like this to have an R rating that, that seems kind of laughable because they are kind of goofy to me. So that makes a ton of sense. But I'm curious how old you guys were the first time you saw Raiders because it came out in 81. So I would have been just a baby and I think you guys are a little younger than I am. So maybe you were also babies or not even born yet. So how old were you when you first saw this? I don't remember. Uh, this and Temple of Doom are just, they're part of my subconscious. Like these these movies and the first two Star Wars movies are just, they're there. They've taken up permanent residence. I don't know when it started. Um, I just was obsessed with them. I know I saw the third one in the theater and it was a big deal because it was the one I got to see in a theater. Um but those first two, I really don't know. I, I think, like, I grew up, I lived with my uncles for the first, uh, and, and my grandparents for the first seven years uh, of my life. And they were, you know, obsessed with this stuff as well. So it was constantly in and out of the house. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know if this is something that was on television or whatever or something, because VCRs were, were just starting to become household items around then. So... Um, yeah, I don't know the first memory of it. I just know that it's, it's like, I know the whole thing beat for beat, you know? Uh, I am, a, I was born in 78, so, uh, I'm a 
few years older. So I would have been three, but that's definitely too too little to watch this movie. I think I probably saw Temple of Doom first, to be quite honest, which is the second one. Um, and that one probably terrified me as a kid because, you know, they rip people's hearts out of their chests and they eat bugs and and there's it's even more it's even grosser than the first one it almost feels like a reaction to the first one of just like oh you thought this was juvenile just wait we can get even more juvenile um and so the second one is just really really gross uh to almost to the point well to the point where the third one they were just like yeah sorry guys we went a little too far we're gonna take it back a little bit and try and make a movie that's similar to the first one um so like I think they it, I'm assuming it terrified me because when I was little I was scared of everything like everything I was scared of E.T. Uh, which I did see in the theater and my uncle took me to see Gremlins which he probably shouldn't have had because I I had nightmares although it's one of my favorites I love Gremlins so I'm assuming these first two also terrify me especially the ending of Rages of the Lost Ark where their faces all melt which um, I think looks amazing still uh, even though it's just it obviously doesn't look real, but just like the stop motion of his hair growing and, and or, or the, the face is just kind of turning to red and it's just disgusting. I love it. Um, so I'm assuming that stuff is like, OK, time to cover my eyes because I'm too little to be watching this. But with my uncles, I think a lot of times it's just like, oh, you could watch whatever. Uh, and it was only till my mom got married and my stepfather <clears throat> adopted me. Uh, when they really started to clamp down on things, I'm like you're not allowed to watch this, 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 and this, and this. But you know, stuff like Indiana Jones had already kind of seeped in at that point, so uh, I, I got kind of, I guess, lucky in that regard. What about you, Tony? Yeah, I um, I can't remember either. I do, I do distinctly remember when I was about five. So it would have been uh, right after Last Crusade, which is the third one probably came out on video we were driving to Tennessee to see um some family friends and uh, my it was either on cable or my parents rented it at whatever motel we stopped at on the drive down um because I remember you know lying in in bed and seeing the the beginning with uh, River Phoenix as young Indiana Jones and then the um the scene on the the boat and then I remember waking up just in time for that dude's head to get chopped off at the end, um, <laughs> which was fairly traumatic, but also really bloodless. And I think, like Matt was saying, the third one is kind of a, a deliberate like backpedal from the gruesome stuff. It's it's uh, kind of like a buddy comedy with him and Sean Connery. Um, and yeah, the action is all completely bloodless and uh, there's no real teeth to it. Even like the big, like the scary scene at the end. Um, really pales in comparison to the the face melting um but yeah this this was something that just always had a pass my parents were pretty strict but for some reason um uh, yeah hearts getting torn out and nazis heads exploding um was all uh fine it was one of those weird things where i think as long as they both were like oh yeah that's cool i like it um it was acceptable but when it was something like the simpsons where they're like it's a cartoon and they say naughty words i don't understand that like the distinction was very arbitrary. Uh, it's something Matt and I have talked about before. Like, you know, uh, what did and did not sort of make the cut for me and my sister was, um, in retrospect, uh, yeah, 
there were no real rules. It just depended on <laughs> what my parents were thinking that day, um, which I guess now I have to uh, either be a hypocrite or just let my kids watch whatever garbage they want. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> the message that it's okay to melt Nazis is like a really important one to <laughs> instill in your children from a young age. So I think that's fine. <laughs> I feel that like, is true, true. Yeah, you got to teach them young. Nazis deserve to be melted. Um, I think you just figure it out as you go. I mean, my parents had their rules, which didn't make any sense to me then and still don't make a lot of sense to me now, to be honest. But I do know that they were really worried about having to have, having to have difficult conversations with me. So especially with anything that had sex in it or anything sex adjacent, like they just didn't want to talk about it because it was uncomfortable for them. They didn't want to teach me about sex. They didn't want to acknowledge that I knew what sex was. And so for them, scary generally took a backseat to sexy. So to the point where if there was like a kissing scene that came on television, my dad would like get up to change the channel or sometimes he'd unplug the TV if he like couldn't get the novel changes <laughs> or like find something else. Um, my dad loved Mel Brooks. Um, and we watched a lot of Mel Brooks movies, which is funny because he's filthy um, and a genius, but a, a filthy genius. And so my dad got around that by either like talking loudly during some of the more like sexy, campy parts or so my favorite example to use of this. And I write about this a lot in the book is Young Frankenstein was my father's favorite movie. And I grew to love it, too. And it ends, not, not ends with, but at the very end, close to the end, there's a sex scene between Madeline Kahn and Peter Boyle as the monster. And I didn't know that existed until I was like in college, even though I saw that movie a bunch as a kid, because my dad would always turn it off. And I always thought the movie ended really abruptly. <laughs> I just thought, oh, it's over now? It's weird. Okay. <laughs> oh, maybe he fixes it later. Um, and I only came to discover the sex scene at the end when I was watching it in college and had, you know the freedom to watch the whole thing. And so um, I wonder if that was part of it, Tony, with your parents, just feeling like the Simpsons like touched a nerve of, of discomfort in a way for them that they just didn't want to address, whereas Indiana Jones maybe not so much. I mean, I don't know. Um, but I think about that a lot now that I have my own children. I have a five-year-old and a toddler. And the five-year-old in particular is just like really curious and he really wants to like watch and read everything he can get his hands on, um, including some stuff that I think is kind of inappropriate. And so I just am trying to like take it case by case, but it's hard. I mean, you don't know what's going to kind of um, bug you as a parent, I think until you're in the situation that is bugging you and then you have to figure out in the moment, oh shit, how am I going to handle this? Sure. And then you never know when they're going to end up watching Pet Cemetery in a tent in somebody's backyard. Or <laughs> and then just the ambiguity <laughs> of it will haunt them. <laughs> um, so we've talked around it a bit, but what did you think of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, so I need to start this by saying that I took an edible before I watched this movie. <laughs> the reason why I took an edible, and I live in California where it is legal, anyone who's listening and wants to be teetotaling about it. Um, I started taking edibles during quarantine because I'm having a hard time sleeping, like I think a lot of people are during this insane shit show of a world that we live in right now. So I took an edible yesterday because I had a long day and I thought, okay, I'm just going to relax into a movie and then I'm going to go to sleep and it's going to be great. And the reason why I think this is noteworthy is because 
it made things like the face melt- melting scene just seem like super weird, <laughs> weirder than it probably would have. And also, like, I'm not a fun person to be around when I'm high. Like, I make stupid jokes. I, th- I feel like when you get high, you become the person that you naturally are and that you're, like, just kind of trying to suppress. And so I make a lot of bad jokes. I can't stop talking. And I also constantly think that I have seen or heard things before. So I spent the whole movie thinking like, oh, I have seen this, I have seen this. And then realizing that I hadn't seen it, I was just being high and stupid. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's at the tone um, for watching the film. I, I did realize eventually though, and my husband and I talked through it because he loves this movie, he's seen it a million times. The Part of the reason why I felt like I'd seen it before is because the movie is, so iconic that I imagine that it has been replicated or at least referenced in a million ways um, that I've probably seen. It's also, it kind of perfects my understanding or tries to perfect some of the, I don't want to say tropes, but some of the characteristics of earlier adventure movies, right? This idea of like the archaeologist who goes on this crazy adventure and there's like a mustache twirling other like competitive archaeologist and there's a plane flying over a map like I've seen I know I've seen all that stuff before and my understanding is it's because this movie is so classic that people are constantly referencing it and also it attempts to like take the best parts of all previous adventure archaeology movies and put them all into one thing does that make sense no, totally. Um, yeah. I mean, the the sort of genesis of this movie, kind of like Star Wars, was <clears throat> George Lucas's love for these old adventure serials. And Spielberg had always wanted to do a James Bond movie. So, like, this was his chance to do that sort of, like, iconic hero. They actually um, devised the idea for it in Hawaii the weekend Star Wars came out. George Lucas was convinced that it was going to be a bomb. So he's like hey, let's just go to Hawaii and ignore the news because I can't deal when this movie flops and my career is over. <laughs> um, so I, I just love the image of these two dorks like sitting next to a pool in Hawaii, um, just creating the next biggest thing that either of them were going to do. Um, but no, it's it's totally, um, like you said, sort of a throwback, but also a perfection of those types of films. And um you're not alone. I I was also high when I rewatched it, and I was texting Matt, and I'm like, "This movie is perfect." <laughs> uh, uh, I I actually I actually rewatched them on uh, my wife Meg's birthday. We watched all the first three, um, and because on my birthday this year, which is in February, I watched um, all extended versions of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and then, uh, so for her birthday, because we were stuck inside and it was March, uh, it was the end of March and we, we couldn't really go anywhere or do anything. She's like, well, why don't we watch movies on my birthday? And I was like, all right, that sounds great. And so she picked Indiana Jones, which she loves Indiana Jones. And she actually, uh, has a double major. And one of them is, uh, uh, anthropology cause she loved Indiana Jones so much. Wow. So we watched all three of them, uh, the first three in a row. Uh, and yeah, and, and, and for her, this is like, uh, you know, she never watched Star Wars, but she loved Indiana Jones. So, um, yeah. And, and, and again, like, it's just like, oh yeah, this is, um, this is great. Like so great. And, uh, and it's hard to kind of, especially that the first one Raiders of the Lost Ark, cause it feels like, um, I think a lot of people in our generation, there's like, uh, m- maybe 
some people have a fondness for the third one, I think, more than the first one. Um, I don't agree with that. I think the first one is is the best. Uh, I think Tony's on the same page uh, with me with that one. I just think the first one feels like this perfect uh, time capsule of this type of movie. Uh, it's like, you know, to borrow from another Spielberg movie, it's like this perfectly trapped in ember kind of th- amber thing. Um, just every action beat in it, it feels like it's it's made to perfection. All the character introductions are so perfect. This is like almost like what you would show a film 101 class on how to set up and introduce characters, all the villains and Indy himself and Marion. And, um, but also just how to tell action through and character um, through framing and, and camera movement. Um, I just think it's it's a wonder. <laughs> I think that there were things that I really loved about it. And there were also things that I thought were really problematic, not just from a filmmaking point of view, but from like a how the movie treats its women point of view that I think that it's hard to know if I would feel that way. If I, if this movie had already been part of my own journey to becoming an adult, if it was already part of my set of cultural references from being a kid, um, I loved it. And I also was so bothered by how Marion is just this constant like damsel in distress who literally has like a frying pan that she's trying to defend herself with. And um, she's kind of like a goofy caricature and it was hard to know. I probably felt especially sensitive to that just being a woman who I think, and women I don't think have been represented very well in these types of movies until maybe recently. Um, That was really the only problem I had going through. It wasn't even a huge problem. It was just a distraction. Like, oh, why is she in that dress? There's no reason to be in heels. <laughs> why is she like only why is she incapable of defending herself or having her own autonomy? That was the the thing that kind of stuck with me. But I liked sort of along those same lines of goofiness. There were so many moments of goofiness that I really did love. Like the first my first big laugh was when he's teaching the class full of these adoring women, all, you know, chins in their hands, and they're just batting their eyes at him. And then there's the one guy, right, which I thought was very subtle, um, the one guy in the adoring crowd. And the woman closes her eyes and, and has love you written on her eyelids. Like, I laughed so hard. And I thought, okay, this movie is really laughing at itself, um, which I loved. And I had just said, oh, my God, he's such an, a handsome man out loud right before they cut to the woman with love you written on her eyelids. And so I thought that was incredible um and i loved little moments like that where it's sort of like laughing at itself and it's letting the characters be goofy so that was kind of my favorite i actually took notes that's what i'm looking at right now um (laughs) it's funny i went to school i went to undergrad for film and media studies film theory and so i'm very used to taking notes in the dark while i'm watching movies um but i took a lot of notes on that i took a lot of notes on how the stuff that feels epic in the movie like fight scenes for example um they feel epic but they also feel to me now like light and refreshing because like i said i've been watching a ton of like agents of shield and kind of more serious like fighty things and so watching the fights here just felt like goofy which i loved um i'm sure people are listening to this and being like this bitch she doesn't know what she's talking about (laughs) (laughs) doing my best taking an edible raising two kids it's a pandemic Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and respect. Um, oh, 
here here are two things that I thought you might really enjoy. So, oh no, now I'm reading the note. <laughs> it's in all. <laughs> I wrote in all caps the dress WTF question mark why it's like a quinceanera dress like she's just stuck in this dress this backless dress with the big rosette on the back I didn't understand why did we do that to her I'm so sorry Marion um but I realized as we were watching that I have two personal connections to this movie without even knowing that so the airplane that he gets in at the beginning the, the first is the first um, sequence where they showed the plane superimposed over the map, you know, and they kind of draw the route that he's flying. That airplane is at the Oakland Museum of Aviation in Oakland, California. It, it's 10 minutes from my house, and I've been there, and I've been on that plane. So I thought that was kind of cool. Every year, they, a couple times a year, they will open up, they do open cockpit days. They have all these historic airplanes. And you can go and, like, wander around the place. So I've been on that plane, so I thought that was cool. And then... Cool. For the end, after everything has happened, they're at San Francisco City Hall. Um, and I, that's where I got married. So I got married right at the top of the steps where Indy's coming down after he, let's see, I was high. So let's see, <laughs> get this right. It's after everything and he's met with like the core group of, like the fat guy with the little mustache, you know what I mean? Those guys, like mm -hmm. he just met them. And then Marion's like standing at the bottom of the stairs waiting for him. Those are the steps of San Francisco City Hall and that's where I got married. So. And then, oh my god, I have all these, I do have connections to this movie um, without even really knowing that. So I thought that was interesting. Again, so high. Let's see what else did I write down. Oh, I wrote down that it looks just like the Disneyland ride, um, the Indiana Jones Disneyland ride, which I don't know if you guys mm -hmm. have been on. Um, yeah. I, I went on that. The one time I was in, uh, went to Disneyland, it was closed. Oh no. I was devastated. Yeah. And then, and then my wife went uh, to to California for a dance competition, and she went with some students, and it was open, and I was really angry. Did she go on it? Yeah, she said it was. She's like, it's the greatest ride ever. She, she have loved told it. Told you, she should have told you it was closed. She should have kept that one for herself. <laughs> nah, nah. She she's she's the type. She's the type that like the other day. She's just like. I have two apple cider donuts I'm bringing home for you. And she came home and she's like, here is your apple cider donut. <laughs> one. And I'm like, oh, where's the other one? She's just like, I said I had two. That doesn't mean that you were, they were both for you. So she'll always tell me, always. I think always. that's a good thing to have in your relationship. It's probably not wise to be lying to your partner. So let's just forget I said any of that. Um, it would be always totally honest with my husband. Um, I think... So the ride I went on a couple of years ago, I went to Disneyland with a, a company I was working for at the time. We went to Disneyland as like a company trip. It was very close to where I live. And um, I went on the, the Indiana Jones ride had just opened and I hadn't seen any of the movies and all I knew was snakes. And so all I knew was snakes. Uh, I, I always watch scary things through my fingers and I'm scared of roller coasters and so it's not a roller coaster but it is a very you get in like a little car and it's sort of like a jerky ride and so I experienced most of the ride again like looking out through my fingers and I knew of like the boulder the rolling boulder is so iconic I knew that was coming I knew the snakes were coming but you just listen to Harrison Ford like narrating and you feel yourself sort of like being jerked around and so that was my experience of of the Disneyland ride but what I did see I felt like the movie it, it's funny I was like the movie really captures the ride and my husband was like <laughs> <laughs> other way around i was like oh yeah no that makes sense um what else did i write down let's see 
something. Oh, there were some parts that I laughed so much at that I wasn't expecting. Like my favorite moment was what's the evil German guy's name? What is his name? Bella? That's the one. No, the one with the little tiny glasses. Oh, uh, Tot. What is it? I don't think they. I don't think they ever actually say his name. His name's Tot. Oh, okay, good. So I don't feel quite so... If you guys don't know his name or aren't sure about his name, I don't feel quite so bad. But the guy who gets the amulet melted into his hand. So my favorite moment of the whole movie was when he takes out, like, that very sinister-looking, like, like leather and chain rod. And, like, I was like, oh, my God, what's he going to do with that? And then he, like like uses it as a coat hanger. Like he takes off his coat and somebody uh, hangs it. I thought that was so funny when you think he's going to like beat the shit out of someone. And then he's just like using it as an intimidation. And it's really, he's using it as a coat rack. I thought that was genius. Um, I don't know if people usually go through their notes while they're on your show, but this is sort of how I do things. Please. Oh yeah. So I have this note of, I keep thinking I've seen this before, but then I realize it's because this is, these are sort of classic scenes that people are constantly referencing. I wondered to my husband, I said, I wonder what happened with whip sales after this movie came out. So I was wondering, suddenly like a market for whips. <laughs> I I can tell you that my uncle did own a did whip. He really? I don't know if it's connected, but I remember he came home. I think he went to one of those uh, like Ren fairs, like the you know the where, where they they do the old knights fairs where you'd show up and there's jousting and all that crap. And he came home and he had a whip. And I always thought it was so cool. I don't think he ever used it once, but I saw the whip and I was just like, oh my God, Indiana Jones, I'm that much closer. So at least one sale, at least one. We used to go to King Richard's Fair all the time in Southern Massachusetts, um, that run fair that happened every year. But that's I'm so glad to hear that. And I felt crazy. I think this is like a theme of my life. I'm constantly feeling crazy. But I thought, like my mind just went to merchandising for some reason. And I thought, I wonder if there's adults who really wanted to go hard on the like authenticity of the bullwhip and actually went and got like a real legit whip. It sounds like your uncle had like a, like a whip, like a legit whip. Yeah. It was a real deal whip, like hardcore whip. Really fancy. Probably spent way too much money on it. I wonder why. Well, I have a lot of questions that probably your uncle would best be suited to answer that. I definitely asked my parents to get me a fedora and immediately upon purchase and putting it on I'm like oh this doesn't work and, uh, I did not wear it because you were a child that's like an old man hat that, that fedora <laughs> he makes it cool and he's a handsome man but that is like a classic old man hat leather bomber jacket combo like just that's a guy who's who's settled into his life you know so maybe that's why it didn't work I did read that the hat, because I, I like to go on IMDb after I've watched basically anything to kind of read the little trivia bits. And I read that Harrison Ford and the costume designer worked together on, like, aging the hat. So they bought a hat, and then they all took turns, like, twisting it and sitting on it and sort of battering it so that it looked like a well-worn, well-loved hat. So maybe that was your problem. Maybe you didn't, like, sit on it enough or twist it enough. Yeah, I did not give it the That's chance it. to break in. I just... I just ruled it out. You could do it now, I think. Mm. You could do one now. Because, like I said earlier, dads have beards. You got a nice beard going on, like a quarantine parenting beard. And I feel like at the door to that, it just adds a layer of sophistication to the mm -hmm. look you have. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. We can work on that together. All right, I'm looking at you guys. Please 
questions because otherwise I'm just going to keep rattling through. Oh no, I no, you <laughs> let's go through the notes and then we'll add questions as they come up. Okay. Well, first I had love you girl, which I already talked about. And then this made me laugh so hard. So my husband is very, like he very much turns into this like wide eyed little boy when we watch stuff like this. And it makes me, it just fills me with love because I think, Oh, I'm getting to see a side of my husband that I never got to know. Right. But it also, he often makes me laugh because he's so himself. So he, we watched the opening scene with Alfred Molina who was in the opening credits. So I thought he would have a much bigger role. And then when he died so soon, I was really shocked. Um, and he, that, I think that was his first, was that his first role? He One looks of them, good. Yeah. Um, so when they're moving through the booby traps, they discover the, oh no, it's before the booby traps. When they get to the part with the beam of light and Indiana goes, can I call him Indiana? Do you call him Indy? Do you call him Indiana? I want to get this right. Can I call him Indiana? You can call him whatever you like. People are listening to this podcast and they hate me because I've already talked about how I think the movie's problematic. So I want to get his name right so I don't get like lots of hate mail. Maybe one or two. Yeah, yeah, I'd say call him Indy to be safe. Call him Indy? Okay. So when Indy says to Alfred Molina, don't go in the light, and it's because that beam of light triggers a booby trap, my husband was like, this is the one thing that always bothered me about this movie was that I just felt that this booby trap was like so unrealistic and i was like the whole movie is really unrealistic (laughs) (laughs) the problem with is this unrealistic like the logistics of this booby trap don't make sense to you so i was like laughing about that right away because of the whole thing this is the one like anachronistic problem that my husband had with the movie was the light the the booby trap triggered by light so i thought that was funny um okay so then i the next note I had is about how I had taken this edible and how I kept thinking I'd seen the movie before. Then about how I said what a handsome man out loud right before the the girl blinks her eyes. I love I loved how when they left class, all those like devoted young ladies who are like putting little love notes or whatever on his desk. There's that one guy that just puts an apple on and leaves. I thought like I see you, I see you. Nod to gay guy. I see you. Congrats. <laughs> 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 Right there. Um, let's see. Oh, I said that bad guys always wear tiny glasses, especially bad German guys. I feel like they always have little tiny round glasses. Yeah, that's 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 a real trope about uh, Germans in general, I guess, but maybe Nazis specifically, that the, the tiny creeper glasses. They're like little teeny tiny versions of like John Lennon glasses, right? And I hate to compare John Lennon and Nazis sort of in the same. Ugh, cut that. Don't even say it. I didn't say any of that. Forget it. <laughs> It's going in. <laughs> I, I, I do. Um, I think it was probably shortly after the last election. And I watched this specifically with the goal of keeping track of how many times he uh, punched, murdered or maimed Nazis. And it's quite a lot. He's truly a role model for all of us. He's a hero. He's a modern hero. And that's I'm fine with it. Like I said, if you're going to let your kid watch something gratuitous at a young age, something with the message about melting Nazis, I think is like the perfect entree into this sort of genre. Here's what I wrote out, wrote next. I wrote the shootout in the dive that Marianne, is, she owns it. She keeps talking about how she's stuck in this dive. I thought it was a very nice bar, so I wasn't really sure what she meant. But I have the gun sound effects are basically pew pew, because they were. And that was something I really noticed about the movie too. And again, hi, so maybe notice more than I would have. But the sound effects are very... 
they're unique. They're interesting. They're almost cartoonish. Like I did like notice like a pew pew. And I noticed anytime, like, for example, there's a scene where when he's, this is later in the movie, but where he does that crazy stunt where he gets on the front of the truck and then he like lowers himself underneath the truck and he's, you know what I'm talking about. I don't need to describe this to you. There's a scene where people are trying to jump on the truck to like get him and like, at one point, this guy falls back and he, like, tears a piece of fabric as he's falling back. And the fabric's, like, <laughs> like, you can hear it very cinematically. And I thought that was so interesting. There's just, like, so much kind of candy going on with the sounds I thought was cool. Um, yeah, none of it's particularly, like, like, you talk about, like, modern action stuff. And there's this sort of, um, you know, attempt for realism. And, and yeah, like, it's not going to have, like, that dramatic fabric rip or, like, some of the guns are pew pew. Indy's gun is always like a cannon. Like it always sounds way bigger than the the one he actually has. Um, yeah, the the sound in this movie is really fun because it is all cranked up and yeah, almost cartoonish. I loved it. I felt like sound effects became their own characters, which is maybe a, a stretch, but I just felt like it added so much like comedy and texture to every scene, like rather than it being super realistic, like you said, you, they gave Indy's gun a very distinctive indie sound of being like a cannon and sounding strong. And then all these sort of cartoonish, um, like all of his enemies had these kind of cartoony sounding. I don't know. I thought it was, I thought it was cool. The punches too are so iconic. Like I think you could almost like, chart like the before and after of the indiana jones punch because they are so loud they're almost like a another gun going off they're just you feel those punches and it, it felt like they probably cranked those up as much as they could go and it almost sort of defined 80s action movies because punching became you know so loud and aggressive uh, and I, I don't know if it started here but it definitely feels like oh I know that Indiana Jones punch I know that sound. it really amped up the tension when you can hear something so loudly and clearly that normally would just be faded way into the background I thought that like elevated the tension and just like the fun of a lot of those scenes um oh this is this was a dumb thing and you can explain this to me why? So, okay, so you have the amulet, and on one side, it's like, put the staff this high, and on the other side, it's like, but adjust it this way, and then that's the correct height. Why didn't, why did they have the adjustment? Like, why didn't they just have the regular height on one side? I think it's to keep people away, because, like, again, like, everything was secretive and, and, and protective. Uh, so part of it is like again part of the riddle of this whole thing is you know you need that extra piece uh another like preventative measure even though like the idea of it existing in and of itself negates the fact that they're trying to keep it secret but that's part of the whole serialized kind of storytelling that they were borrowing from and the things that they grew up they even said when they were making this we want to make a b-movie we want to make a B movie and everything that's part of that. And um, and I, so I think th that's why a lot of this kind of works for me, because it is kind of playing with those those tropes, you know. Um, OK, so the, that makes sense to me. The. I have notes about the dress. I have notes about how he leaves her to go. Like, he, he finds Marion all tied up, and he gives her this big kiss, and then he's like, wait a minute, the ark is near? Just hold on, just stay here. And he, like, ties her back up and leaves. I was so angry. I almost turned it off. <laughs> I, well, so 
I I do want to talk. I do want to talk about the Marion, uh, uh, I guess problem. <laughs> we'll talk about it because I think part of the movie and to its credit recognizes that Indy is a bastard. Like he's kind of an asshole, and I think over time, like he's been softened because of this, especially because of the the third one. But he is kind of, you know. He's more concerned with the his archaeological findings than he is necessarily with her. So I think maybe some of the problems with her aren't necessarily her. They're coming from him and how he treats her. But I do think those some of those things are rooted in a lot of the things that they're taking from, whether it's noir movies or, again, the serial kind of uh, B-movies that they are taking from. I do think that they felt that they had given her agency because, again, she sort of dictates to Indy, I am doing this. You cannot stop me from doing this. And she does get the upper hand in the bar. Um, and we are introduced to her. And I think at the time to to introduce uh, a, a, a character like her by having her out drink this guy that's uh, much, much bigger than her. I think maybe they also thought that that was revolutionary because, you know, women didn't really drink like that, especially coming out of the 70s, um, where a lot of the 70s was defined by like these macho, macho directors taking control. Um, And the woman's picture has kind of gone away by this point. And once the 80s came in, it was just out the window and everything was about men and it became, you know, gross out comedies and, and a lot of sex comedies. Uh, and then all the action movies were all defined by these big oily guys like Stallone and, and, and Schwarzenegger. Um, and I, I don't think this is that quite yet, but I do see the beginnings of that in here. Um, I think the dress thing is a little strange, but I do think in that moment she does get the upper hand on them. Uh, she's constantly getting the upper hand, even though she is kind of in distress. But Indy is also like especially by the end of the movie, Indy doesn't solve anything. He doesn't win. He just gets lucky. And so, like, if you're defining the movie through Indy, he's also gets in the same situations that Marion kind of gets in. So on that level, I do think they're sort of on the same level. But again, like, he does mistreat her. So I do see kind of where you're coming from. Tony, what do you think about it? I think when I say that I think Marion is problematic, I don't think that she as a person is problematic. I think it's the way that she is treated by the filmmaker and also by the other characters. I think you're right. And I did write down about how she drinks the other guy under the table. I remember thinking, you know, as a young woman, that that is something that was kind of the sign of a tough broad, you know, someone who can drink a guy under the table. That's really like the sign of being someone who's cool and in control and it's unexpected. A woman would never be able to drink as much as this big doughy guy. So I do think it said a lot about just her pluck um, and her character. Um, I do think there's, I wish that she had been given the opportunity to get the upper hand more often and with sincerity, like putting her in the dress was just another way to kind of like tie her hands. Um, Obviously not literally, but when you take... There was, was it one of the Jurassic Park movies where Jessica Chastain was in those high heels running all over the place and people got really angry on her behalf? Like she's. That was uh, uh, Bryce, uh, uh, what's her Dallas name? Howard. Bryce Sorry, it's... Dallas Howard. Yeah. Um, but 
it kind of felt that way to me here, right? Like she's, it's hard enough (laughs) to be kidnapped and like be tied up and be subject to like the whims of a crazy Nazi who's trying to manipulate you and the man that you love and the man that you love took advantage of you when you were a teenager and then disappeared and now you're back. But like all of this is hard enough and you have to wear heels. I just felt like, oh, I want more from this woman. And I liked her. I thought she was like ridiculous in a way that I thought was really charming. And I wished that she had had the upper hand more often instead of just being like screaming, carried away in a basket screaming or unable to defend herself except with a frying pan. Like it just, I wanted more for her. And so I don't know if she comes back in other movies. Does, okay. And so like fingers crossed because I thought she was great. And I get exactly what you're saying about how this was progress at the time because of the tenor of other action movies and how they were so male-oriented and male-gaze-oriented. So I appreciate the progress there, and I hope that it is a mark of, you know, a beginning of progress for more movies in the genre, because, you know, not having seen this as a kid, I'm just seeing it as a fully formed, well, it's fully formed as you can be, right? As a 40-year-old woman, that's, that's what stood out to me now. Like, a 40-year-old woman in 2020 watching this movie, I think hopefully you can appreciate why I thought it was, why I immediately went to, oh, this is problematic rather than kind of, you know, trying to understand from the beginning why it's problematic. But, you know, I thought everything that you just explained makes a lot of sense to me and acknowledging that Indy's treatment of her as problematic is, I'm glad to hear you say that, that this is something that's kind of understood about him because it was the one thing that really kept me from falling in love with Indiana Jones was just how, I don't know, like cavalier and callous he was about the, his leading lady. So, uh, yeah. And that's something that didn't register as a, when I was a kid. Um, but you know, I think I do remember there is that moment as someone who is old enough to understand what the subtext or what the suggestion is. But like when she has that line, I was a child, I was in love. I was like, Ooh, like, and that was, and that I think what's, made this movie interesting to revisit as an adult or is like Matt was saying, like he's not a good guy in this first one necessarily. He ultimately does the right thing. And like his, his moral compass might slightly point toward more towards North than Belloc's. But like as the series progresses, he just becomes a more like by the third one, it's an Indiana Jones movie. It's sort of like he, he, they've sanded down the rough edges, but I think, you know, this is more int- this idea of the 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 antihero is a little more interesting than just a regular um straight up good guy and um yeah i mean that relationship is really <laughs> troubling especially since it's never explicit like you can justify it as many times as like however it makes you feel comfortable saying you love the movie and being okay with it but like the fact is they kind of just leave it up in the air and you kind of have to think well it, it, it could probably be worse than you, than it, than you want to think it is um, and yeah, the, I think, uh, as much as I love Marion, I, yeah, the frying pan is like, oh, let's give her a lady weapon or, um, or the dress is, you know, let's, let's put her in a situation where she has to, the only way she gets out of it is by sort of playing up her feminine wiles and like, um, she's proven to be more capable than that, but they keep kind of, you know, they only give her. The, she's only on such a long leash and they keep pulling her back into these um, more aggressive situations. I think the thing 
uh, which is a little startling, is that I think Marion is probably the most well-rounded uh, female character in all of the Indiana Jones movies. It gets worse after oh, this. Yeah, and then, then... <laughs> it get it gets a lot worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Willie in this in the second one, it's just straight up shrieking damsel in distress the entire time. Um, and the the actress like does the role really well considering what she's given, but like that's all she's given. And the third one, really, the third one's, uh, she's not really a character per se, more of like a plot. To, she's just moving the narrative forward. And that's, I, she's not really a well-rounded, she's not compelling the way that Marion is. Because at least Marion, I think you could sort of fill in a lot of pieces. Uh, they give you enough stuff. There's also recently, a few years back, uh, it was online, they, they, they released this thing called the Indiana Jones uh, or the Raiders of the Lost Ark story circle. Tony, have you seen this? Yeah. Where it was, uh, they kind of revealed like, they had like the whole meeting of where they sat down for however so many hours and and kind of hammered out what became Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that the backstory for Marion and Indy was that she was, there. they had a relationship when she was 14, uh, which is which is really, really bad. Um, uh, and, and, and thankfully, they don't really make mention of that. She just says, I was a child, which, you know, when you're watching, you just say like, oh, she must have just been like, you know, a teenager, like 18, and he was like in his early 20s or something like that. But no, it's, it's, it's way worse than, their initial idea for it was way worse than that. That's troubling. I do, I do want to say I really appreciate that we're having this conversation. I think it's important to have conversations about how we can do better by women, either, you know, fictional or in, in reality. But also, I imagine it's hard to go back with a critical eye and revisit or have new conversations about things that you're deeply in love with that are part of the fabric of who you are. And so to be able to go back and, and talk about the ways in which the Indiana Jones films could treat women better. I just appreciate having this conversation because I think it would be totally easy to be like, ah, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, yes, she was treated badly, but think of all the ways that this movie was like pioneering in the genre. So I think it's really important to go back and, and highlight opportunities for growth and evolution so that, you know, we can continue to do right by women and people of color in pop culture. Yeah. I, we're going to keep having these conversations because, I mean, the predominant, uh, the most popular movies that are coming out now are failing us left and right. Still, the Marvel movies are failing us, and they're the most popular things on the planet. And they throw us breadcrumbs as far as representation. Um, and, and, and they're like, hey, lap this up. We know you love this. And you're just like, no, this is, this is still not yeah. what it should be. So... Um, and then they expect expect applause when they kind of, you know, like chart it out and say, like, see, look, what we're giving you the thing you want. And it's just like, this is not what it's we like want. It's too little, too late. I, I mean, I could talk about Endgame forever. I feel like it's a whole other conversation. But I really love the Marvel movies and I got into them late. Uh, my husband really wanted to start watching them. And so I was like, OK, fine. I'm not really into superheroes and then just fell for them very hard. And Endgame 
there's that moment, the like, I call it the sisters are doing it for themselves moment where all the women are like, we've got her and we're going to fly together and protect, serve each other, women, let's get our periods in sync. Like it's just supposed to be this moment of feminism. And it made me so angry. And every other woman I know that saw the movie was so furious by that. Like, this is the moment of all, you have all these incredible female characters that are supposed to be strong and powerful, powerful and have agency. And all they get is this moment where they all fly into the shop together and they look resilient. And that's supposed to be enough for us. And after you've killed off Black Widow so that she can better serve the man who has more of a purpose than she does. I was so angry and I couldn't explain for a long time why I felt so failed by that moment. And I felt stupid for feeling failed by that moment because everyone else I talked to about the movie loved it until I started talking about talking to it with my other women friends who felt the same way. So again, I can go off on a tangent, but I think it's really important to acknowledge that there is space to hold up and revere movies like this while also understanding, okay, here are ways in which this movie failed its female characters or failed its people of color. And like, let's keep that in mind as we keep trying to evolve from there. Cause I think this movie really failed its people of color also. Like, Oh yeah. Oh, you didn't, you didn't like what? I mean, Sala was, yeah, that's, that's not great. <laughs> John Rhys Davies is a British man and he's in like brown face. So clear. Um, and again, like we now know how bad that is. And I think probably at the time people kind of knew that it was bad, but it wasn't, I don't know. It, it's not that it wasn't as bad. It's just that people weren't thinking of it as being that bad. I mean, the only way it could have been worse is if they, were able to get Danny DeVito away from taxi for that role. Like they wanted to. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. Yeah. Which would have been bonkers because I can't imagine him even pretending to do a voice. He's like, I'm Danny DeVito. I'm Egyptian. And it's like, Ooh, I don't know. Are you? <laughs> well, I, I, and I think, you know, like, uh, like just because this movie is static and we can't change the fact that Sala is in brown face and that Marion was not portrayed, um, the way that she should have been like, doesn't mean that, you know, we're not static and it's just, it's like the, 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 just the, the digging in of people's heels be like, no, you can't, you can't question that thing I love. Because like, but like, it's not necessarily an indictment of you until you prove that you're not willing to consider that that thing you love is flawed some way. And like, that's like, that's a lot of that is the fun, not the fun, but like, why these conversations are, you know, why we have them. <laughs> like part of the, just getting into it about movies to not have that part of the conversation seems foolish. You're not learning anything. Yeah, That's a constant on this show is where we're always kind of, you're allowed to love things and still say that they're flawed. I mean, that's who we are. That's, that's what people are. Um, so, and I think too often the conversation around art and pop culture is is like it's the greatest thing ever or it's the worst thing ever. And there are definitely things, there are definitely problematic works of art that I love and and I recognize the problems in those art. Uh, and the goal is always to say like, let's talk about those things because you can't just say like, well, that's how they did it back then because then we get stuck in this cycle. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, older movies that um, 
have a lot of questionable choices and it's easy to just say like, oh, well, yeah, well, we know better now. But, you know, that's a simple answer to a very uh, deep and, and, and long conversation. So I think that's all it is. And that's what we're doing now, obviously, is like saying like, this is a movie that Tony and I very, love very much. Uh, but we can still recognize that, yeah, those are things that that are, you know, that that could use work going forward. Um, but I, I, I think that's that's part of what makes things great is that we we have these conversations. Yeah, I think so, too. It's funny. I was thinking about what you said an hour plus ago about not wanting to revisit stuff from your teenage years and knowing like, oh, it's flawed. I don't want to think about it anymore. I want to move on. And I think that's so interesting that you can look at movies like this in the same way that you look at your own teenage diaries of like, these are representative of a very certain time in my life or just in the world where circumstances were what they were. And I can either like revisit them and enjoy the joy and pleasure that I felt and also recognize, hey, these parts weren't great. Or you can just kind of keep them suspended in your brain and never revisit. And I think it is so important to experience the joy and nostalgia of revisiting a movie or a TV show that you loved when you were a kid and also be thinking about, okay, how have I evolved? How has the world evolved since this thing was created? And how can I sort of use that to inform either the person that I am or the kind of culture that I consume or even, or create, you know, it always goes back to diaries for me. I'm sorry, guys. I'm constantly <laughs> have this conversation because it's hard. First of all, it's hard to be a woman. It's hard to be a woman, period. It's hard to be a woman who has never seen a movie like Indiana Jones, which has such cult devotion, especially by men, I think I, this feels like a movie that a lot of guys watched and loved as a kid, and it's like a touchstone for them. So, never having seen the movie, I already feel like I'm down a peg. And then to find flaw with it, especially the way that the woman, the woman, there's really no other women, is treated, I came on to this show thinking, should I bring this up? Because I don't want to hit two nerves. I don't, I'm not like a sophisticated enough feminist or talker to be able to defend my feelings about this in a really innovative way. I just thought maybe I don't even bring it up. And then I thought, well, you know, but as a woman and as one who I hope is a feminist, I can't just be silent about the problems that I see and how Marianne was treated. And, you know, I was nervous about bringing it up. So I'm glad this is a conversation that you guys seem comfortable having uh, because I do think it's really easy to just get nostalgic about things that we all loved and, and not acknowledge the things that could have been better. So Thanks for not attacking me. Who knows what'll happen? But uh, when we post when we post this episode to Eight Chan, it's just it's over. You're just gonna get torn apart. <laughs> I we we have this we have this conversation all the time. So I don't I don't think anyone that listens will 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 find it out of the ordinary. Yeah, and and, and I'm and for what it's worth, I'm sorry that you even questioned bringing it up. Yeah, um, but again, that sort of speaks to what you're getting at. It's, um, but I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, I was concerned you were going to bring up the the critique of the representation of colonialism in the movie, which is out there, and uh, much smarter people than I have explained and attempted to defend. And I know that's there as well. I just can't speak to it because I'm too dumb to do it. I mean, I don't think you were dumb in any way. I think I picked my battle based on 
the feeling, the strongest feeling I had that I felt the most informed to talk about. Um, yeah, I think it's always hard, and this is something that I'm working on, but it's always hard to introduce an unpopular opinion. I think particularly when you're speaking to people who have established as a baseline this thing that we're talking about is an important part of who I am. And so I felt, okay, I don't want Matt and Tony to feel like I'm critiquing them as people or as men or as intellectuals. I, it was just more a feeling of like, shit, I'm a woman who's about to bring up like the woman thing. And <laughs> that sort of always opens up a can of worms, especially when you're talking about stuff like beloved pieces of pop culture. So that's where I'm coming from. Not that I think that, I mean, I obviously Tony, I've known you for years. Like you would never say anything horrible to my face. I don't know what you blog. Um, (laughs) 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 Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think that speaks to, to a larger problem with a lot of toxicity in fan culture is that, um, that inability to separate the thing that they love from themselves. And certainly, uh, I've been guilty of that in the past with with certain pieces of art, but you get, you know, hopefully you get to a point where you realize, oh, the th- I am not that thing. The thing might inform me, but like I, we can we can pick it apart, and it's not going to cut too close to the bone for me personally. But um, you know, when you get into people who are upset about uh, even the um, sort of uh, half-assed attempts at representation in these big movies like that's you're 30 man and you're you're upset that there's you're upset that there's lady superheroes and you're upset that there's a couple more black stormtroopers than there were in the last one May, maybe this should cut to, to the bone a little bit what aren't you saying out loud people were so upset with a wrinkle in time and how they cast meg as a as a black girl people were really upset about it um and i thought oh this is a great example of how like poisonous <laughs> white culture can be you know what i mean i was um, more upset that they made uh, well, reese witherspoon look like a lettuce lady and it was one of the most poorly designed cgi characters i've ever seen i was just like oh, way to ruin a great book but the representation wasn't the the, the issue with that movie sure anyway i could that's veering off into it totally new direction (laughs) just bring it back um no i think uh, yeah i'm grateful to have this conversation and i'm i was thinking about this but now i'll ask now i ask anyway if you guys were to make this movie now are there things that you would definitely keep the same things that you would definitely change and like what are the casting choices that you might make now I would keep Harrison Ford. I don't care how old he is. I well, you're anyway, in luck. But I'm you're in luck because they're making a new Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> they are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I think this is one issue I sort of have with a lot of fan culture is this kind of like, like if even if we only had Raiders of the Lost Ark, I'd I'd be fine. You know, I think that we we get kind of so bogged down in this like oh all right let's let's cast james bond as a woman how about we just stop making james bond movies and we just make a new spy story you know that i think that's more interesting to me but we've so defined culture through through intellectual property it's always about like oh here's this great new actor and actress what can we cast them in that we're familiar with 
And I find that so disheartening. Oh, which superhero is this person going to play? Um, so sometimes like I kind of like that idea of like who can play indie is just like, oh, I don't, I don't, and then I'm not trying to be callous, <laughs> but I don't really care, I guess, because there, there is that conversation right now of just like, oh, if we were going to recast indie, who would it be? And it's just like, I think I just want another, just, just tell me new stories. Just tell me new stuff. Um, you know, uh, I, I think uh you know indie is a product of its time and it is looking back too because you know it takes place in the 30s and uh and uh i uh, what appeals to me about it still now obviously is its craftsmanship uh as far as framing and action sequences and uh, i still think that they're better than nearly everything that comes out now um especially that opening, I just think like that's action movies to me. Uh, very rarely do any modern movies reach the heights of what, how that set up and payoff of that whole sequence. And I think thematically that idea that, because Indy says in the beginning, you know, oh, you know, this is just superstitious. I don't believe in this stuff, but it's just the idea of it that, that entices him. And at the end, it becomes something bigger than even he can imagine. And I, I love that. I love that concept, that fear, that theme of there are things that we don't understand and, and you may try to control that. So I think a modern indie movie would, I think that would be one of the most important things to include. What about you, Tony? Oh, man, I don't know. Um, counter to a point Sarah made earlier, uh, I've spent pandemic watching rewatching a lot of old comfort stuff so i'm not i wish i had more like fresh new faces at my fingertips but between uh feeding two babies every three hours and just like general existential dread i've just been consuming <laughs> a lot of uh simpsons rerun so like i don't know maybe maybe bart could be indiana jones <laughs> <laughs> He is in that the beginning of that one episode. Oh, that's right? true. Yes, there's that one where he goes to the school bus and then Homer chases him and mm-hmm. rolls down the stairs yeah. like the boulder. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah. I think with maybe um, I think doing this type of movie or or again sort of not just giving lip service to practical effects, but actually making a big modern action movie that's committed to showing you all the action, um, making you feel like there's really trucks blowing up. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. I th- I think again, like Matt said, the craftsmanship is like what's um, what makes a lot of action movies now kind of feel hollow. Um, I'd like to see more of that. Yeah, I don't know, Matt. I like what you said about how you would rather rather than like recast, you know, do this version of an iconic character, but as a woman, like you would rather just start a whole new story or a new franchise or what have you. I think that's right on because. Now that I think about it, when you say, okay, James Bond, for example, James Bond is the greatest spy story there ever was and ever will be. So let's just reimagine if a woman could be the greatest spy and have the greatest story there ever will be, right? Let's take this um, this like icon of, of spying and give a woman a chance. I, I think you're right. It doesn't serve the story and it doesn't do anything. It's not progress in that way. It's just... 
let's take something that's male and give a woman a chance at that rather than create, you know, a whole new character or circumstance that is not absent of gender, but is not so male um, or not hailed for its masculinity. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And I think, Tony, what you just said about, sorry, I'm spinning off into pandemic stuff now, but what you said about watching comfort TV rather than seeking out new stuff, we are seeking out comfort in new things. So I've, I've mentioned Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. a bunch, but I, I find something really comforting in watching a show where I know that either by the end of the episode or the end of the season, the bad guys will have been defeated. And there is something that feels so important about that to me right now. And that was another reason why I loved watching Raiders of the Lost Ark is because I knew that Indiana Jones was going to win by the end. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he had to. He's the hero. And... You know, that's how these films go and especially used to go. And so there's another reason why I loved watching it is because I knew like, okay, there's Nazis and there's snakes and there's bad stuff happening. But by the end, we're all going to be feeling great because our hero will have won. And so I thought in that way, it was like the perfect movie to watch during these weird, sad times. Sure. Yeah. I think if this were made now, Tucker Carlson would call it an Antifa hit piece or something. that's really funny and true they're like does he really need to punch the nazis can he just understand their perspective talk it out no so um uh, one thing we do here on the show is after we've talked about the topic we make suggestions uh for where to go from here so sarah is there anything it doesn't have to be a movie it could be tv uh, a book uh Anything, um, anything you would uh, suggest our listeners go to next after Raiders of the Lost Ark? I don't know. I mean, I myself am curious to just keep watching Indiana Jones movies, especially because my understanding is that when this movie was first released, it was just called Raiders of the Lost Ark and it became so popular and Indiana Jones became such a popular character that they went back and renamed it Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark because it was clear it was going to be the first in a series to have I have that right. Yeah, the the naming convention became Indiana Jones and the blank after that. And then they kind of like retroactively like, I don't know if like, if they've completely gone all in on that, but yeah, yeah, pretty much that they're... Got it. So I would, I would recommend for myself to just keep going in the Indiana Jones um, folklore and watch, what is the next one? Temp, temp, in the Temple of Doom. I, so I would say do that but my biggest recommendation is take an edible before you do it because you will find the experience enjoyable in so many more ways than you could possibly imagine. I mean, not only did was like all the comedy heightened for me, but I also had this revelation about Harry Potter while I was watching, which I will share with you. This is ridiculous. Um, but in the during the snake scene where Indiana, Indy, excuse me, his name is definitely Indy, where Indy says to Marion, shoot anything that slithers. And she says the whole place is Slytherin. I thought, oh my God, I just put together that in the Harry Potter series, um, the Slytherin house is like associated with bad guys, associated with snakes. And it's actually slithering, like a snake slithering. This is like a whole stream of consciousness, like chain of notes that I wrote down. I was so high, but it heightened the enjoyment for me because I was able to spin off into this like, tear where I felt like I was super smart and unlocking the secrets of Harry Potter. So whatever you do next, wherever you go, whatever you choose to watch or listen to, take a drug. <laughs> Your drug. <laughs> <of> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
create a whole like new level of experience for you than you never would have imagined. That is my recommendation. Put a period on it. I love that you said that because I think I made a Hufflepuff joke at that line and looked over and Sandra was just asleep. (laughs) 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 I felt so smart and I like feeling smart. It doesn't happen very often. So take a drug, live your life. That's my, that's my recommendation. Hopefully that's not too obscure. I don't think it is. It seems like a universal want. Matt, what about you? What would you recommend? Okay, so so Sarah, I know you have two little kids at home, uh, and so and, and and this is for you too, Tony. Uh, in a few years, but there's this cartoonist. His name is Carl Barks, uh, and he um, did these um, these Disney stories, uh, comic books from like the 30s through the 50s, and um, these are the inspiration for Ducktales, the TV show Ducktales. Uh, he introduced Scrooge McDuck uh, and the nephews uh, and all that jazz, and they're uh, you know they're adventurers. Uh, they they're they're a big inspiration for Spielberg and George Lucas. Um, and the original comics are a lot of fun, and they're really they're pretty great. They're ad- adventure stories. They're great for young kids, and it's a nice gateway uh, into Indiana Jones eventually. What about you, Tony? Uh, I'm also going to kind of make a recommendation for myself as well as for everybody else. But um, this got me thinking that I, uh, Romancing the Stone has sort of been uh, a movie on my periphery that I always have associated with um, being kind of like Indiana Jones. Um, and um, the cast is really good. I know I've seen parts of it when I was a little kid. but um, You've never seen it? No. Really? Yeah, it's good. I like it. Yeah, so uh, I think I, I think that's one I want to finally check off um, my list. So, and and another big inspiration as far as older movies is um, the tre- Treasure of the Sierra Madre, uh, which is from the fifties, uh, directed by John Huston. It stars um, stars Humphrey Bogart, um, and it's another kind of he plays a bastard in it. He's he's a pretty bad character. Uh, but it's great. Uh, a lot of fun adventure kind of movie, um, kind of ahead of its time in a lot of ways. It's so great to get these recommendations because I really missed everything that you're talking about. I missed all of it. And it feels like we could just like, <laughs> you could be a perpetual guest and we could like, <laughs> like massive things. Cause I think sometimes like Tony and I do a lot of stuff that's a little more, um, maybe cultishly adored or something. Cause I mean, we've seen a lot of the big, big stuff as far as movies go. Uh, you know, we have a lot of blind spots as other pop culture, like music and movie music and TV and all that stuff. But a lot of movies, a lot of the big stuff, we're kind of, uh, we don't always, uh, it's always hard, a little harder to find. Yeah, I think, you know, part of the adults that I, became is informed by the kid that I was as the case for everybody and having missed so many cultural touchstones I feel often like I don't understand even modern like contemporary stuff because it's all referential right and so not having seen Star Wars I feel like there's so much I just don't get you know not having maybe less so Indiana Jones but there's so much modern stuff now that I just don't get and I feel like on the one hand I, I owe it to myself to go back and watch all the kind of source material for the movies and television that I'm enjoying now so that I really get it. But on the other hand, I get so overwhelmed by 
the sort of chasm of pop culture that exists in my brain. Um, I just don't know. I don't know. Do you guys think it's worth going back and revisiting all of your favorites and all of the kind of modern classics that people seem to hold up as, you know, really informing their, what they love now? I mean, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's hard because some, if a lot of it feels like essential, but I know that that's an objective, uh, sorry, a subjective opinion to have, um, I don't know that your life will be any more or less enriched not having seen Star Wars. So, um, and I would argue that right now is kind of a lukewarm time to be a Star Wars fan. So, you know, um, yeah, you know, I think it's, it's all situational. I think maybe if there's, if there's some new show or movie that you're super into and you know that there is a, um, a big reference point that you've missed, go back to it. But I don't, you know, otherwise it starts to feel like homework and then you know, if you're like, Ooh, I don't like this. then like, you don't want to engage with the conversation. And I mean, that's just me. I always get crippled by the anxiety of having a opinion contrary to popular consensus. So that's cause I'm a coward. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, we've talked about this on the show and oftentimes because we are going, that's the purpose of our show is, is to do exactly what you asked. And oftentimes because we want to, it's not just about watching it for us, it's a deeper analysis. So I think oftentimes you're looking at it through a lens of what did people value in this? Why did people like this? And trying to connect to that part of it. And that helps a lot for me. Because I think, as we stated up at the beginning of the episode, like all this stuff exists on a spectrum. It's not either great or bad. It's very rare something is perfect. And it's very, but it's also really rare for something to be truly, truly awful. Because there's so many things that are involved that go into making these things. So I know for me, like I love just constantly going back and, uh, and, and watching old things and, and, and filling in those pop culture blind spots. I think that's why we started the show. So um, I'm obsessive. So like if I read something and I find out it was an influence on something else, then that leads me to that. And I keep going. And that's how I make decisions on watching things. It's like this constant, ever-evolving snowball. So recently I was just like, oh, you know what? There are a ton of people on my letterbox account that are talking about Jean-Claude Van Damme and there's a bunch of them that are his movies that are streaming. So I'm going to start watching them. So I start watching a few of those. Oh, you know what? He's in a John Woo movie. You know what? There's a bunch of John Woo movies I haven't seen. I'm going to start watching some John Woo movies that I haven't seen. Oh, he did do Mission Impossible 2, which is my least mission favorite Mission Impossible. But that means I'm going to really, because I rewatched it because of John Woo, I'm going to rewatch the other Mission Impossible movies. So for me, it's just this constant evolving thing because when you log on to a streaming service, it's the choices are seemingly endless. So I kind of use that as my guide oftentimes. Oh, I'm reading this book. Uh, I'm gonna, and they talk about this reference point or it was influenced by this. Okay, that's gonna lead me here. Oh, I'm reading these comic books. That's gonna lead me here. So that's always kind of worked for me, but I'm probably more obsessive than most people and I probably watch and, and read more than most people, probably an unhealthy amount. 
Uh, so, uh, and, and I don't have kids, so I know like, you know, that, that eats up a lot of time. So, but like, I do think like, I think it's just about being curious ultimately because like you never want to force people, you know, so people don't want to watch old movies. They don't want to watch old movies. What I don't like is when people say old movies are bad. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's all it really comes down to is having that curiosity for it. And if you don't have any interest in it, then, you know, don't shut it out for other people necessarily. Yeah, I agree with that. I would say neither of you have seen Watcher in the Woods, right? No. no. I would invite you to watch it and then we can have a conversation about that wherein I will be the expert and you guys can tell me what you think about Watcher in the Woods because who Sounds great. It is way outside the... Um, what you would think of as a typical live action Disney movie that, that has a young, young children as its intended audience. I'm curious. Cool. Well, um, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you? Um, what you're up to the book? Um, wh where can they find you on social media stuff? Sure. So my book is called let's never talk about this again. And you can find it wherever you would normally buy a book. I, I, you know, all the websites, I would very, very much encourage you to support your local independent bookstore. Um, you can order it through whoever you want. Um, my personal favorite is the Harvard bookstore, um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or you can just Google my name. Uh, it's Sarah Faith Alterman. Um, for mortified, really encourage everyone to check out at least our podcast. Obviously no one can go see live shows right now, which is a damn tragedy. But if you go to getmortified.com, you can find links to our weekly podcast, to the series we have on Netflix. I know that there are clips of Tony reading, like floating around somewhere. So maybe you can share uh, those yourself with your listeners. So as not to, so I don't really put you on the spot, um, but those are the places. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I, so rarely either get or take the opportunity to talk about pop culture just because I don't have a huge knowledge of it, especially from, you know, the eighties, early nineties. And so it's been really fun talking to you guys. Thank you for tolerating my <laughs> ineptitude and talking about drugs. Just no. usually <laughs> weird times. It's, we were all acting, behaving wildly out of character. So thanks for that guys. I, <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have you have you had any um, um, like who's on first moments with your book where people come up and say like I'd really like to read your book. What's it called? And you say like Let's never talk about this again. And they're like, well, no, I want to I, I want to read your book. So just tell me what it's called. Let's never talk about this again. I don't know why you're being rude to me, ma'am. Um, Has that happened not or yet, no? But I hope that it starts happening. Um, I will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I the way I describe the book a lot, I'll I'll say, oh, and then my my dad and I we never talked about it again. Or I said we I, I end up talking about talking or not talking about it a lot. It reminds me of that scene in Best in Show where Jennifer Coolidge's character talks about how much she loves talking and not talking, and it's just, it ends up being <laughs> thing. Um, so I'm I'm hoping for a who's on first debacle at some point soon. Now I'm gonna try and prompt one if I can. I, I, I should, sh we should have mentioned this up front, but I mean, I, I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was, uh, it was really lovely and, uh, I read it really quickly. I, I found it, uh, really relatable and I know like that's a very specific story, um, especially with what you discovered about your dad's writing and all that stuff. But I found just that notion of like these people that were raising you and, and trying to instill things into you are, are 
in some ways unknowable and contradictory is easily one of the most relatable stories. Uh, that's just something that we've talked about that a lot on the show. I mean, obviously that's, that's kind of driven a lot of, of my life as well of to kind of like searching for, for, for answers about your past and your family. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a real um, labor of love to write. I had a really close relationship with my father who died about five years ago. And so writing the book was sort of a love letter to him and kind of an investigation of him. And, you know, every parent, maybe I'm generalizing, but Tony, and your kids are like maybe too little for you to, to feel this way, but, you know, parents are people. We have rich, complicated personalities and multiple facets, and we show to our kids the things that we choose to show to them. And it is totally normal and fine for parents to have, you know, sides to themselves that they don't want to share with their kids. And so I think I never took issue with that, with the fact that my father had this sort of like adult version of himself. It was more the problems or the complications that come from secrecy in a parent-child relationship. Um, and so, yeah, I, thank you for reading the book. I'm, I'm glad you identified with that. And I, I, I don't know, it, it, reading the book and kind of investigating my dad in a way all while I was becoming a parent for the first time made me think a lot about my own choices as, as a mother and the things that I will or won't show to my kids, be it, you know, Indiana Jones films or, you know, artifacts from my own childhood or, you know, things that I enjoy as an adult now. So I don't know. It just, it felt like a story, my own story that's going to keep evolving, I guess. Tony, how do you, I mean, you probably haven't thought about this at all. Your kids are a couple months old, right? Yeah, no, I'm not really at the point where I'm sort of curating what they're taking in uh, or, you know, what about myself I'm, deliberately not informing them about but I think as you were saying writing the book as you were becoming a parent I think I you know reading it as I was becoming a parent um uh and I've and I've sort of mentioned this as well but sort of uh, the first few months of um parenthood were marred by uh you know my wife had a, a lot of um pretty aggressive postpartum so the struggle of navigating life with a person who is temporarily not the person you've known them to be was, um, you know, I really appreciated your honesty. Um, and it made me feel okay with, you know, th there's a shame around feeling, um, resentful or, um, because it's not something the other person can control, but like your feelings are also valid. So I sort of felt, um, your book kind of gave me permission to feel some of the, the angst I was feeling around my own situation. So, um, and you know, I think I'm just going to let my kids know about my porno writing career. <laughs> As you should. Yeah. About you. <laughs> <laughs> Best thing you're offering to the world. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you saying that. And it's funny, my five-year-old, as I was writing this book, I had a, a bunch of my dad's books that I inherited. Um, I have this trove of like dirty body seventies sex books, like lying around the house. And as I was writing my book, my son, and some of them look really fun to read their cartoons. Right. So my son found one that was called sex quiz. You can't fail. 
just a picture of like a clip arty looking guy on the front with like a wink on his face. And he brought it over to me and he said, Mama, what is this? Can we read this? And I like out of the corner of my eye, it looked like one of his comic books. But then I turned and saw what it was. And I was like, no. And I realized that that <laughs> must have felt when he was trying to hide these books that he had created from me. I thought, oh, shit, like this is too much for my son. Like he can't see this. He can't know that it came from his mother and that it came from his grandfather. Like he can't know any of this. And so I had this moment of panic that, um, you know, I'm sure there will be many more moments of panic like that um, as my kids grow up. But. It, it certainly gave me insight into what my dad must have been feeling as a parent himself. So anyway, this is all to say thank you for reading it and saying these nice things. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, We appreciate you coming on. So, all right. Well, we will talk to you all next time. Yeah. Later. Bye. Thanks for listening to What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And you can find previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And thanks, as always, to the What's Your Writers Club in downtown Providence for hosting us. You can follow them on Instagram and Twitter at What's Your Club, and you can get more information about what they do on their website at whatscherclub.org.